Are you driven to innovate and lead transformation in your organization? Our digital innovation program provides you with the tools to navigate complexity and chaos and successfully deliver digital change. Visit imi.ie for more information. IMI, we grow leaders. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. My guest today is Gerd Leonard, who is a futurist, humanist, author, keynote speaker, and has a whole lot of other accolades to his name. Gerd presented the third and final event in this year's IMI Masterclass series a couple of weeks ago, and the session really gave an insight into the future and what your organization can expect, and it turns out it's not really so gloomy after all. So Gerd, please go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Yes, greetings. I'm Gerd Leonhardt, Futurist. I'm based in Zurich, Switzerland, and I've been working in the future industry, the future business for roughly 20 years, uh, advising many clients, corporate governments, and so on around the world about strategies for what I call the good future. So I want to start off on quite a positive note. During your masterclass, you did a mentee poll to see how people in the room were feeling about the future. And Ireland in general was feeling quite positive. Is that in any kind of contrast to what you see when you speak in other regions? Or do you find that most of the world feels quite positive about the future? Yes, I think it's pretty safe to say that right now most people feel scared about the future. Uh, but it's very much a cultural thing how people actually are responding. You know, for example, you see in countries like the uh, in, in the Emirates and Dubai, people are excited about the future and they're looking forward in India also, uh, in Germany and generally in Europe, we are mainland Europe, we're much more like the future has a lot of problems because, you know, we're seeing the geopolitical issues right now, right now we're seeing AI and the future of work and so on. So there's a, it's a mixed bag, but quite a few people around the world are worried about the future, uh, climate change artificial intelligence, automation, and geopolitics are kind of piling up. And this is leading to a kind of, I could say, disillusionment for a lot of people saying, okay, the future will be bad. Uh, also because, of course, the media is portraying the future as detrimental and dystopian. No matter what you watch about the future, it's negative, right? So that's something that needs to be looked at. You know, I, I want to sort of rebrand the future as being potentially pretty amazing. I think that is the right approach. Thanks very much, Gerd. We'll go into some detail about AI automation and a little bit about climate change a little later. But I do want to talk a bit about the evolving nature of industries. And during your masterclass, you drew some parallels with transformation in the music industry. So record labels used to sell records and now they sell artists and branding and everything that goes around those artists. How do you envision this kind of paradigm shift will impact other sectors, finance, healthcare, transportation, those sorts of things? You know, I think it's primarily a good thing. What's happening is that we're going into a digital world. So most new services and products are digital, at least uh, part of the components. Even food is now a digital business where you can have customized food and food grown in the lab and fermented meat and those kind of things, right? And I think what it means is that we need to fundamentally think about what we sell and how we sell it, and if it's kind of future proof, you know, for example, in the banking industry, 
a lot of money was made with small fees and transaction fees and and those things are going out the door and in come new things for example digital applications uh, ways of microloans and all of these kind of things that are essentially digitally enabled and we need to think about whether we can create new products based on that concept rather than going back to the old one so for example in the car industry it's no longer about selling fancy cars to fancy people. <laughs> it's about mobility services. And it's about every step of that mobility. And so we need to go away from this thinking that the future is just like today. We're just going to make it faster and better. To the future is different than today. So the car industry will sell subscription services like Spotify for cars. And it will not sell cars with gas engines because... You know, that we just can't have them any longer. And now we're switching to everything renewable. And what you need to do in every business, whether it's banking, insurance, construction, you know, tourism, you have to think in windows. You know, there's a window that's now, and those windows are closing quicker than they used to. And new windows pop up, and you have to already look at the next window. You know, Microsoft is a great example now. Microsoft for a long time, the OS and Microsoft services and so on. And now the next window is artificial intelligence. The next window is not software that they used to have on every computer. Right? It's services. And we have to think of that in Windows. And the record industry has been very bad at the windowing because they were essentially forced into that thinking from external parties like Spotify and Apple. But if you're good at it, you know, like in tourism or so, or government, you can say, okay, we've, we've got this window now, but the next window will be digital services or they will be, you know, sustainable tourism and we get ready for that window while we still have the old window so we can take a leap. Right? But basically, we have to take a wider view. You know, we can't say that what we're going to do in 10 years is just like today, only faster. That is just not going to work. I think that's really interesting and it's definitely relevant for our listeners who are leaders in their own businesses to be thinking about what the next window is for their industry. I want to touch briefly on healthcare. So you mentioned a proactive shift from sick care to healthcare in the future. How do you foresee technology like AI and biotech potentially reshaping really the healthcare landscape within the next decade and do you think there are any challenges that might arise out of that? You know, I see primarily good things coming from this because we may finally be able to make healthcare 100% affordable and, and mostly free for many of our citizens instead of the costs going up like they have been. And that is because healthcare has been utterly inefficient and, and reluctant to embrace technology that was already there. And also, of course, because it's paid for by the state and so many places that it has been immune to innovation. And so what we do is we treat people when they're already sick and we give them pills, we take them to the hospital, we keep them alive, basically. Uh, in the future, we're going to switch to analytics, understanding what is the problem, reading our personal information, changing our lifestyle, allowing us to, us to have customized medication, customized treatments, and look at the whole thing in a, in a holistic way, right? So they're there's lifestyle, there's food, there's what I actually do, there's what I want to do for a job, then there's, you know, how I treat healthcare and so on. And so healthcare is becoming much more technology driven, uh, and which will bring the cost down a lot. So, for example, not having to go to the doctor 
for trivial things because I can do them from home using a therapeutic device. You know, that's that's like billions of euros right there uh, that we can use for different things. And having the doctor be more efficient by digitizing what they do and also by using AI to help us read and make sense out of things. Yeah, that's all looking very good. But we have to get away from this concept of um, you know, consuming healthcare, like we take a pill and the problem is solved, you know, that that's not working and that will work even less in the future. So the more holistic approach to healthcare, huge opportunity, I think, for the healthcare firms. But like most innovations, the dramatic innovations often come from the outside. So Spotify in the music business, uh, Tesla in the car industry, um, the uh, blockchain, Bitcoin slash digital money, EFTs and so on for banking, right? So that comes from the outside and then they bring it in because they've gotten a bit of a shock therapy, right? So the uh, the Pfizer's and Roche and so of the future will most likely be forced into action by companies that come in and completely reinvent how everything works, like uh, Tesla did for the car industry. And I think that that is primarily a good thing uh, because it will decrease cost and make it more transparent and will make it easier for the government to provide free healthcare. And this is a, all in the next 10 years. I mean, we're talking about pretty mind-boggling shift. I mean, we're going to have 5 billion DNA in the cloud where we can look at data, compare it to each other safely in the cloud, of course, hopefully safely and securely. And then an AI can read through our DNA, our biome, our phenotype, and, and, and look at potential indications that we should be aware of, and all these kind of things that are very futuristic. But as I said in my speech, you know, science fiction is becoming science fact. This is so fascinating. And I think that things that we thought even just a couple of years ago would never be possible seem like they will be possible in the very near future, especially with regards to healthcare. So it makes a lot of sense that people are very optimistic about the kinds of healthcare that we'll be able to see in the not too distant future. I think something yeah. people are not as kind of optimistic about is the future of the climate. And in your masterclass, you highlighted the importance of decoupling GDP from emissions and really creating sustainable practices. And now a lot of that, I'm sure, will sit with the kind of governments of the different countries as opposed to individual organizations, individual companies. But I'm sure there are roles that organizations can play in promoting the use of renewable energy, advancements in fusion power, anything else that can address climate change. So are there any steps that leaders in Irish businesses in particular can take towards creating more sustainable practices? Well, I mean, first we have to be aware that we're no longer talking about something that's nice to have, you know, like dinner first and morals, as Bertolt Brecht used to say, like, you know, corporate sustainability is kind of like a thing that we do sometimes. Uh, that that was kind of true before COVID. And then COVID gave us this kind of shock therapy about what happens when an emergency takes place. And now we're heading towards climate emergency in the most pronounced way that we can't even imagine. I mean, we thought it was going to be 40 years away until we see the, the really powerful waves of climate change with, with global warming and, of course, weather disasters and all these, and, and of course, immigration, right? Immigration that's caused by climate. We thought that was going to be 30, 40 years away. Now it's 10, 15 years away. And 
So basically that means it's not just the fear factor, but also the opportunity factor, because it turns out that making our industry circular and sustainable uh, in a way is like reinventing every piece of it is creating a huge new business opportunity. So as many people have started investing in green technologies, uh, the next 100 uh, uh, unicorns, you know, billion dollar companies, they're all going to be in climate change, in climate technology, whether it's batteries and software, agriculture. I mean, it's just exploding with action. I mean, we could see nobody in their right mind is going to buy a car with a gas engine in the very near future. And not just because they feel guilty, also because it's just going to be much cheaper and better. And so this is all coming to fruition now. And basically, we have to understand that this is no longer a sort of nice to have. It's bottom line. Uh, and people that are not moving towards a fully sustainable approach, no matter what the cost initially, this is also important, right? they will be uh, basically pushed out by consumers who are now becoming, of course, the biggest sector in that consumption is people between 25 and 45, not the baby boomers, you know, who, who didn't really push that too hard. So that's basically what's happening there. Also, we have to understand that in the shift from the fossil fuel economy to the green economy, you know, we're going to create hundreds of millions of new jobs. I mean, in the U.S., we just launched, Biden just launched a climate corp, like, like the, uh, 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 what call it, the Peace Corp. Right? Same idea. People who do for a job what they used to do voluntarily. And that's going to happen in every country. We're going to see a lot of more regulation there. It would be clever to preempt the regulation and to put that as an emphasis. And that goes for airlines. It goes for tourism. Uh, and, you know, we finally are going to pay what it actually costs uh, to eat meat, to travel. That's inevitable. It's also good news in so many other ways because uh, that is going to be honored on the stock market as well. So the stock market is shifting over from this myopic view of profit and growth at all costs, like Aramco, Saudi oil company, you know, to honoring the fact that people are trying to actually create a good future and not to destroy it. So this is a positive momentum I think we all need to partake in. Thanks very much, Gerd. I really want to pick up on something you said there about the 25 to 40 age group. And during your masterclass, you mentioned the three revolutions. So there's the digital revolution, the sustainable revolution, and the purpose revolution. And it really is that younger generation of the 25 to 40s who are spearheading that purpose revolution. How can leaders within organizations align to that purpose-driven ethos that the younger generations have, while also navigating all of the other complexities of business? You know, it's a bit of a jam now. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we are living in a world where the old thing has kind of stopped working and the new thing isn't here. <laughs> so it's kind of like we're going, to do, we're going to start doing the right thing and think in the right direction to engage with millennials who want this purpose society, you know, beyond just profit and growth. At the same time, the stock market is in many ways still looking at 20 years ago in terms of the paradigm. So you can do really bad things and make a lot of money. And that is just not going to work. And now we're in the shifting mode. So to attract people to work for you, you have to give them uh, the understanding that you're really going to take care to put this into the center of your operation. You know, this people, planet, purpose, prosperity idea. 
so that means sometimes you forego uh, profits because it's not the right thing to do. And sometimes you have to make tough choices and maybe people will matter a little bit less than profit. That also happens, right? But you're going to attempt to balance it out. That's going to be the important part. Uh, the willingness to take the risk. And, you know, like some technology firms have decided they're not going to do face recognition technology like IBM because most of that tech was used by autocratic countries to prosecute their own citizens. <laughs> and yeah, so they lost a couple of billion in revenues, but they did the right thing. And I think these decisions are there every day. And sometimes we have to make those choices or those choices. But by and large, that's how we're going to attract people to work for us, you know, to, to actually make a real approach to what life needs, not just a sort of cut down version of it. Thanks very much, Gerd. I want to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence now. And you mentioned just one form of AI technology there, you know, in terms of face recognition, but there are so many different types of AI tech out there nowadays. I think the ones that we probably use the most often now in day to day are things like ChatGPT, and sometimes we use artificial intelligence image generators, but you showed us a really interesting example during your masterclass where you translated yourself speaking, I think it was into Spanish or into Portuguese, when you don't actually speak that language. And I came across another person who'd used very similar tech recently to translate them into German. They don't speak a word of German. And it was actually quite disconcerting to see that when you're kind of expecting the way you watch a Netflix show that might be translated into a different language, it doesn't quite match up. You can see it's dubbed. But this technology just seems to be a lot more advanced than that. It uses the person's actual voice speaking in a different language. Do you think there are any ethical considerations with that sort of thing? And what are some of the other ethical considerations that you need to keep in mind when you're using AI tech, especially generative AI? Yeah, I mean, there are, of course, every good technology has lots of ethical side effects you know, uh, that are going to percolate to the top. Like social media has turned out to have, you know, thousands of ethical issues, uh, primarily being that 50% of people are getting their news on social media. But social media isn't making the news with people, it's making it with an AI. So it's, it's basically not taking care of curation at all. It's just all fodder for advertising. So that became a real issue uh, when we're looking to essentially keep democracy alive but your main source of information is a machine. You know, so that, that obviously is not good. So with AI, the reality is today, most of what we're using every day and what we're going to be using for a while is what are called IA, intelligent assistance. And this is smart systems that are learning. They're not learning like humans at all, but they're learning numbers and logic, binary information, and they can do things that are not mission critical. And if they're, if they're a little bit funky or not totally on target, we can live with that. You know, for example, I can have a self-driving car and then if I'm in a traffic jam, I'm a little bit tired, I can keep my hands on and it will crawl along quite safely in the queue of cars without crashing and I can not pay attention, you know, in that situation. But I wouldn't go on the German highway and go 200 kilometers an hour and expect the AI to, to drive for me, right? That would be mission critical. So... Basically, AI does well when it's about things that are simple, that are narrowly uh, framed, and that don't require any human judgment. 
So the example of translation is amazing because, you know, if I need to talk to my clients in, you know, India, I want to surprise them and, and use uh, local language variation, Hindi, for example, you know, I can send them a video that speaks Hindi and it, it'll be funny and interesting, but not detrimental if it's not totally wrong, you know. So that's good for that. Or if I look at my data in my company, like in a law firm or so, and I want to compare, compare cases, and I've got, you know, 44,000 cases that may be pertinent to this, I can have the AI browse and flag stuff. And, and if I'm a paralegal, I can work five times as fast. But in the end, I need to make the decision about what is true and what's not, right? So that's where that all comes in. And basically, it's going to make us in some cases, three, four, five, ten times as efficient, but it does require still the final human step, like with a doctor or with an insurance company, uh, without automating everything. So the challenge is not so much in that it will do that, but in how much we expect it to do all of it or some of it. So basically, we'll take over our routines, and we're going to be able to do other work that's not routine instead. Right? So it will make us cleverer, faster, more productive. It may give us more free time, which is primarily a good thing. So for most companies today, you know, just forget about artificial intelligence as in Black Mirror or Ex Machina or any of those things. Just turn it around and say, intelligent assistance, where can I take things that are completely automatable and that are routine and augment what I'm doing so I can get it done better? and faster. That's the key. And most of that is kind of like Google Maps. You know, I use Google Maps, but I question it. And I said in, in my speech, you know, at, at the events, that we need to be able to embrace technology, but not become technology, and not blindly believe everything it says, or to stop thinking ourselves. That would be detrimental and also quite dangerous. And, and this is why I'm opposed to the idea of artificial general intelligence machines that can think like humans. I think that really ties into my next question about the the way that humans and AI can work together to automate tasks that usually would have been really manual within organizations. And something that really comes to mind for me when I think about that is that it seems like a great idea for us here in Ireland and potentially all over Europe to be using these kinds of tools to automate previous processes that would have taken a lot of human manual labor. But I'm not sure that that, that, that is necessarily the case throughout the world when you're thinking of people who might be in lower income brackets, less skilled people, people who might have been disadvantaged previously. How do leaders and organizations in general ensure inclusive transitions towards using more AI technology? Yeah, I mean, uh, to ensure that, I think we need to be critical. We need to ask questions. We need to ask the question of why, not just how. And we need to distribute the benefits. So if your work is going to be four or five times as efficient, maybe you should get more money. Maybe you should have more time off. You know, these are policy issues, of course. And, you know, we need to think about uh, possibly an automation tax. For example, uh, if a telecom company replaces 50% of telecom engineering with software and AI, can that money be put to use somewhere else to create more jobs? Right? I mean, these are 
tough political issues. Um, it may very well be in the long run that our biggest problem is that, that uh, we have people doing commodity work, for example, call centers. And when a certain barrier is, over, is, is reached with AI and all of a sudden AI can understand English that's not textbook English, you know, with different variations. And then the call center is 85% people who, who, don't, who are not needed in the same way anymore, right? So we're talking about 20 million people roughly worldwide. And that will happen. So then the question is, uh, what job does a machine do and what job does the human do? And what do I do with the other humans? And, and this is a big deal for Brazil and India and not for Ireland, you know, I don't think, but for those big countries. And so what we have to understand is we have to use the progress of technology to do these things to make it efficient and faster. And then we have to come up with social policy that says, okay, if your job is automated away, we create opportunities like from a fund. You know, Ireland now has a future fund, I heard, right? So we create a fund that says, okay, these jobs go away, but we have many new jobs in environment. We have many new jobs in healthcare and social care. And we can afford to pay for that because we're so efficient, then we need to shift the money. So this is a, a, a policy issue. Um, and it's also an issue of education because really what we want people to do is to be able to shift and create jobs and to be innovative and uh, resilient right? and agile. We don't want people to go to school and have one thing that they do forever. That's just not gonna happen anymore. So we need people to learn how to learn Right? and to understand humans and technology, both, not just technology, uh, to be meaningful there. I mean, the reality is by 2030, 70% of new jobs that exist then are not even here today. That's the study from Dell Computer that actually came, Dell Technology came up with a study. And many new jobs will be in the cloud, virtual, remote, digital. So that requires flexibility, it requires that I learn fast, it, it requires different tax laws, different social security laws, and then we have to consider the why question. For example, if we're going to automate social security to take everybody who should get social security uh, to essentially go through a system of digital checks uh, that dispense money based on an AI doing it, then we have to ask the question, why do we do that? Is it really helpful to do all of it? Or would it just be helpful to sort and to check at context and to do the sort of real manual work, but then keep people in the loop? You know, I'm a big fan of what I call humans in the loop. I think we should always keep the humans in the loop, but see if we can upgrade what they do rather than take them out. You know, because I think that's how we keep value. And also, many jobs kind of look like we don't really need the humans so much, but in the end we do. We need the humans for the checkout. We need them for the social security. We need them for the healthcare. We don't just need better machines. <laughs> and, and so we have to look at this holistically and come up with solutions that fit on a case-by-case -case basis, not just throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that's such an interesting statistic that 70% of the new jobs in 2030 don't exist yet. And that is only seven years away. But I think we can really see that 
when we look back just a couple of years ago, my first ever job was a social media manager and that role didn't exist even three years before that. It was something that people never would have envisioned that companies need to have. So we can definitely already see that. And I think it's really key for organizations to foster a culture of innovation and resilience and creativity in the face of all of these new technologies and all of these brand new emerging job roles that will come down the line in just a couple of years. So, I mean, we need, we need a culture of entrepreneurship, which is big in Ireland, thankfully. Uh, we need a culture of rethinking and saying, okay, I have this idea, it could be completely different, and I can do that. Uh, in Central Europe, we have a lot of problems like this where we, we, we don't want to rethink things. You know, <laughs> we tend to continue them. You know? and, and so this, this uh, particular Anglo ability to zero in on, on things and reinvent, that, that's super important here. And we need people to think, you know, when they come from college, that starting their own thing is a real possibility. And we need to have a fund for that. We need to support these activities. And we need to accept risk. So you fail, you know, fail fast, fail again, try again, fail cheap, right? All of those things. Uh, that's a cultural thing. And so it will be so important in the future to support the culture of invention there and, and innovation not just perfection of something that already exists. Thanks very much, Gerd. I think that is really important, those organizations being able to be all right with failure and allowing for their employees to go off and be creative and be innovative and create something new, whether that's a new process or a new product or something that will give them that competitive advantage down the line. I think we'll end there for today. Thank you so much, Gerd, for joining us on the You're IMI Thinking Leadership Podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. You can subscribe on SoundCloud or on your preferred podcast provider to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Until next time.